In this interview, I'm joined by Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, Research Professor at the University of Arizona, Assistant Director at the Center for Consciousness Studies, and Co-Director of the Semilab with Shinzen Young. In this episode, Jay recalls his upbringing in Mississippi, falling in love with science, and how his work as a promising undergraduate student synthesizing MDMA brought him to an ethical crisis. Jay recounts a life-changing encounter with the Dalai Lama that radically altered his research path and inspired him to personally take up the practice of meditation. Jay reveals how a profound meditation epiphany led to an existential crisis and the role that psilocybin played in reintegrating his body and mind. Jay also discusses Olympic-level meditators, the role of identity in self-transformation, and what it's like to collaborate with noted meditation teacher Shinzen Yang. So without further ado, Dr. Jay Sanguinetti. Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here. Thanks for the invite. Now, of course, viewers and listeners of the Guru Viking podcast will know Jay as one third of the Trialogue series that's been running now for quite some episodes on the podcast between Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, Shinzen Young, mindfulness teacher and your collaborator, and Chelsea Fasano, neuroscience student at Columbia University. And that's been a series that's been very enormously popular, actually. And your uh, part in that, I think, has caused a lot of intrigue. Who is this man uh, behind the trialogue? How does he know so much about so much stuff? And why is he so interesting? So we're going to find out about those things today. And it's been my pleasure to dive into your work in preparation for this in even more detail. Of course, I was aware of it before using non-invasive neuromodulation as an mm -hmm. enhancer or fast tracker. At the moment, that's the focus for mindfulness practice outcomes, as you put it, turning states into traits mm -hmm. uh, and with very many interesting possibilities in terms of clinical settings for treating all kinds of mood disorders and many other conditions. Perhaps we'll discuss that later. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say that for those who want a really great summary of the work that Dr. Sanguinetti is doing, he's got, I think, recommend two resources in particular. Number one, there's a TED talk uh, that Jay has done. I'll link to that in the show notes. And also, if you want a bit more of a deeper dive, there's a presentation that Jay made at the USC Center for Mindfulness Science, which covers the history of neuromodulation and also gives a summary of Jay's work. So I'd suggest that's really excellent way to get up to speed on the work that uh, Jay's doing. And I also understand there's a Guardian article that's about to come out. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yep. Uh, yeah, the Guardian article should be coming out today. Um, I'm, I'm interested to see what happened there. Uh, but it's, it's really focusing on the lab and the work combining neurotechnology. So we're using brain stimulation, a form of neurotechnology to facilitate mindfulness practice. So they're really interested in that concept and, and who the people are behind it and what the motivations are for doing something like that. So yeah, should be an interesting article. So I know about you that you're not only a leading scientist in this field, but you're also a deep meditator of many years of experience and with many profound experiences in that path. And so I'd like to ask you a bit about that. But to begin with, could you give us a bit of a sense of your upbringing, context of your upbringing, how it was you became involved in, in science and what it was as an undergraduate student uh, that turned you towards meditation? Sure. Um, so I was actually born in Natchez, Mississippi, in the very, very deep south, uh, right in the Mississippi Delta. 
And um, as you probably know, the education system isn't great uh, down there. So my science education as a kid was pretty lacking. Um, but I, I ended up going to a couple summer camps as a kid that really, I think, turned me on to science, even though at the time, if you would have asked me, I was not having fun at those camps. I'd rather be playing basketball or soccer. I was big in the sports as a kid. Um, it really wasn't until I got to college that I really became interested in science. And the path there was really because I, I became interested or really obsessed by this question of what is consciousness? What, what, how does this brain and body, if it does, um, generate consciousness? Is it an epiphenomena? Is it just a shadow of brain activity? Or is it like many of the Eastern uh, wisdom traditions claim something more fundamental? Um, and is it even maybe a part of nature next to matter and energy? Um, so I really became deeply fascinated by questions that uh, if you would have told me as a high schooler trying to be cool, you know, I, I had a big Jeep Wrangler and I was into sports. And, you know, if you would have told that version of Jay that he would have become a geeky scientist interested in one of the deepest questions in science, he probably would have laughed at you and said, no way. Uh, but something happened in college, the, the education system worked, and I kind of got turned on to this question, and uh, really dove deep into, you know, how do I even ask that question? Where do I look? Uh, do I go into to science? Do I go into philosophy? Uh, should I do inner practice? Should I meditate myself? Uh, what about psychedelics? You know, I kind of explored the whole range. And um, I really, I, I started out going into philosophy first and realized um, logic is, is hard. <laughs> I took a lot of very high level logic classes. And um, because of that, I decided to, you know, because of that and realizing that science is right on the precipice of uh, really beginning to ask this question. Um, I also started working in a neuroscience lab where believe it or not, I was um, helping to manufacture MDMA, which is a street drug called ecstasy. Uh, or part of that drug, and I was giving it to rats, and we were looking at how it affected their brains. And I think it was this like very high level studying philosophy of mind, and this very low level, like literally counting neurons in the rat brain, um, that somehow got me interested in all the levels. You know, how do you put all the levels in between together to generate consciousness? And I've really been there ever since, trying to figure out what level do you go to. And I understand that that work with MDMA, synthesizing MDMA, giving it to rats and so on, actually ended up being quite traumatic for you. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the work, you know, I never thought I would be um, working with animals. I just got very lucky to work in a lab uh, with Dr. Julian Keith, who was my undergraduate advisor and probably one of the people who's had the biggest influence on me in my life. And we were cutting the rats up. You have to basically do some procedures, which I'm happy to explain, but I, I don't want to explain it if anyone out there in the audience is eating because <laughs> it's very disgusting. Basically, you have to embalm the brain in a fluid and then you have to cut the brain out and slice it. And uh, I was pretty good at that process. And so I was doing quite a bit of that work. And I just had a visceral body aversion to this. I just, I felt like, there's a, a rationale for doing that type of work and it, it helps humanity, but I personally could not do that to the animals anymore. And uh, it caused quite a bit of tension in me because I was lucky to work with this amazing advisor, Dr. Keith, 
and working in this awesome lab where we were doing cutting edge research. But uh, there was something in me very deeply that was saying, this is not Jay's path. Jay is, you know, I was having nightmares and I couldn't, I actually couldn't eat meat anymore. I became totally vegan. Um, so I, you know, was lucky at the time to have just started my meditation practice and really was, I was turning inward and witnessing or becoming aware of what was bubbling up inside. And I just couldn't turn away from it once I revealed, once I shined some, some awareness on it. And, uh, you know, luckily Dr. Keith uh, was aware of what was happening to me, I think more so than I was. And uh, he decided to help me figure out how to do human neuroscience, um, even though he wasn't an expert in that field. And so he actually acquired an EEG and an electroencephalogram just that can record the electrical activity from the brain. And uh, he basically brought it to me one summer, right when I was getting ready to quit. And he said, here, if you can figure out how to use this, then you can stay in my lab. <laughs> and uh, that was one of the biggest challenges of my life, actually, because, you know, there, there weren't a lot of YouTube videos teaching you how to use EEG at the time. Um, and that, you know, really helped me pivot for the first time in my life um, in a way that felt right for my path. And it also gave me a ton of confidence that I can do this. I can teach myself science. Um, I can find the right resources I need. And uh, I, can, I can do this. I am a scientist. That's when I first sort of realized that. So, you know, that's why I owe so much to Dr. Keith. But I also owe a lot to the practice because I think without the practice, without doing the inner work, I would never have made that pivot. I probably would have become a neuroscientist because that's what made sense for me. And, and I'd be kind of crazy not to, you know, being asked to be in that lab. And I think I would be totally miserable. <laughs> uh, there'd be a lot of dissonance in, in my deep emotional systems. I'd like to ask you a bit more about the practice you were doing specifically, but also mm -hmm. something came to mind. You mentioned you were born in the deep South with limited educational opportunities. I'm wondering, um, did you come from an educated background? Were your parents academics or uh, professionals of some sort? Uh, and I'm curious how that background informs, if it informs the way you, you work now or the way you manage your relationships uh, professionally, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so uh, my father went um, somewhat through, um, I believe, some master program, but he has a college education. Uh, my mom pretty much got all the way through college, but didn't graduate because she had three children uh, at a very young age. My mom had me when she was 18. Uh, my dad was 20. So I had very young parents, and I, and I actually, um, I, I blame them in a good way um, for giving me a lot of my creative abilities and my abilities to uh, take a situation and make it work. I think my parents figured that out uh, on the run, on the fly, when they were very young. Um, they also had me when they were in college. So my earliest memories, five, six, seven years old, I was actually on a college campus in Southern Mississippi. You know, I remember going to actually a psychology class with my mother. And, you know, I don't quite remember, and this is probably, you know, memories that were fed to me at this point. But, uh, you know, she kind of used, they were learning about developmental psychology and I was there in the class. So she kind of used me as an example. Um, so I'm sure that that experience really primed me in a sense to be a, 
a campus rat, you know, I, I just live on campus. I love campus. I love being on campus. Um, but I also think it's, you know, my parents um, having to learn how to, you know, have three children at a young age and how to help them survive and providing that sense of freedom that they provided for us with a, a sense of love and security. Um, most of the psychology research suggests that that's one of the best parenting styles. Now, parenting is very controversial, of course, but if you can provide the child with a sense of love and support while giving them some structure, but not too much structure, but some ability to explore and kind of figure things out on their own while giving them reinforcement when they mess up. And my parents figured that out on their own. And I think that's helped me and my brother and sister um, become relatively successful people. Um, I also went to Catholic school as a, as a young kid, and uh, that was actually a very good school, one of the best schools in Southern Mississippi. And I think that that, that was the first two or three years. Um, I think that really helped lay the seed for me, even though that was a very early time. I don't remember much of that. It was preschool and kindergarten. Um, but even though I switched to public school, I think whatever I learned as a kid really helped me uh, throughout my education. Very interesting. Well, let me ask you a little bit about the meditation practice that you were doing in those early days. What was it that got you interested in meditation and what practices specifically were you doing? You know, what sort of books and influences and so on were speaking to you at that, at that time? I know that, that uh, a bit, little bit later on, your meditation took you to some very dark waters. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, that I think is a fascinating story. But anyway, how did it begin? Like many people in my field, so uh, let's define my field, it's the contemplative neurosciences, uh, which is really founded by Richie Davison. Uh, like many people in my field, that's because I got to meet the Dalai Lama, and he, he sort of told me to take this path. <laughs> uh, not, not so much in those words, but I was actually uh, presenting what I thought was my last science poster at the Society for Neuroscience meeting, which is one of the biggest science conferences in the whole world. There's about 15,000 neuroscientists. So these are all PhD, mostly brain scientists. Uh, I was 20 years old and I was having all this uh, issue with doing the animal work that I told you about. And I, I think in my mind, I had decided this will be my last trip driving to Washington DC. I'm going to present this poster on my work and then I'll probably become a philosopher or maybe something else. And the Dalai Lama gave a famous and infamous speech all at once. And it changed a lot of people's lives now that I've heard. Um, it was the keynote. So there was probably about 8,000 or 10,000 neuroscientists in this giant room. The Dalai Lama is giving the keynote. And he was supposed to give prepared remarks, uh, but he got on stage and he tore it up and he threw it on the floor. And his translator, who is somewhat um, of his handler, that's not a nice way to say it, but you know, someone who's supposed to help guide him to say, to, to do the appropriate thing, uh, was pretty upset and was like, no, you have to say what you plan to say. And the Dalai Lama said, no, no, I'm going to speak from the heart now. I'm speaking to brain scientists. And he gave this beautiful speech about ethics in which he said, you people in this room will have the power you'll have more power essentially than the, the atomic and nuclear bombs that have been created before you, because eventually, maybe in 50 years, maybe in hundred years, you're going to figure out how the brain creates experience, how it creates consciousness. And once you understand that, you will have control over that. 
which means you will have control over the inner lives of every human being on this planet. He said, there's nothing more essentially of an ethical problem than that. <laughs> You're going to have all the power. Um, and because of that, you have no choice. Each one of you in this room, he said to us, is an ethicist. And you have to understand the power that you're creating. And that resonated with me deeply because that essentially was what I was working on. You know, I was doing things to these individual animals that felt misaligned with my own ethics because I, I, I didn't really know what my own ethics were at the time. And uh, he said that. And then at the very end in the Q&A, he said, uh, you know, since you'll have all this power, <clears throat> one day you might be able to create an intervention like a surgery or a, a pill that basically allows me, the Dalai Lama, to get the benefit of meditation without having to sit on the pillow. And I swear you could hear a pin drop in that room. It was completely quiet when he said this. And it's kind of a mystery why, you know, people were so uptight about that. But I think it's because in a sense, we knew that obviously that's not possible right now, but we were moving into a future where that might be possible or something like that might be possible. And so a light bulb went off in my head. You know, I thought, well, what is this meditation stuff that he's talking about? Why is this like religious leader coming to this group of scientists and saying something so crazy sounding, right? You know, it was really like, whoa, what is going on here? Um, and you have to understand at the time, there were literally scientists protesting his presence at this conference. There were signs that said the Dalai Lama should not be here. We are scientists. He is a religious figurehead. We don't want him. And um, actually, some of them pulled out of the conference because he was there. So the context was like, it's exciting. You know, <clears throat> as a 20 year old, I was like, what is going on? You know, who cares about this guy? It's just a religious guy. I have a background as a Catholic, um, so you know I have a bit of aversion to organized religion, <laughs> and so I didn't really care about this religious guy being there. But you know, again, I just started meditating, and something in me just said, "That's the direction." Whatever he's talking about is the direction. Um, and then I just I got randomly selected to meet him later that day as an undergraduate student. And, uh, you know, there's a whole line. He like shakes your hand, kisses you on the forehead. Of course, it's pre-pandemic. And um, he says, you know, what's, what's your goal or some variation of that? Like, what do you want to do with your life? Why do you get out of bed? And I said, you know, I want to create that thing that you said. <laughs> and he said, you're going to do it. You're going, you know, and he just says that over and over. You're going to do it. So, you know, that, that just really got me interested in meditation, mindfulness, you know, what is this? I kind of just left with like, what is this stuff that he's talking about? Oh, amazing story. <laughs> Evidently, what the Dalai Lama said was uh, very pertinent to you at the juncture you're at in your life and the, particularly the ethical tensions that you were facing in your own work and uh, looking ahead, possible future of your work. And there was a lot of drama and excitement about this, as you say, this religious guy, a lot of uh, drama about that, uh, with all these protests and so on. Do you think those elements were the impactful elements primarily? For instance, if um, Will Smith or Arnold Schwarzenegger had got up and said something similar, do you think that would have had a similar effect on you? Was there anything in particular about the Dalai Lama? Uh, and I understand this might be a little bit of speculation. 
uh, that uh, factored into that in terms of your subjective experience, or was it mainly what he said at the time he said it? Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and talk about a topic that I normally would not talk about on a podcast. Um, I, I don't know what to believe about transmission, which is an idea in Buddhism that um, there are certain practices, for example, in some of the scriptures that claim that you have to learn these practices from someone who has a certain level of conscious attainment. Their consciousness has been refined to a point and they transmit this information. Um, I think that that's probably something that can happen. I, I don't think that we have to invoke magic or something outside the laws of physics to, to explain that, uh, but it, I think it can feel very magical to people when it happens. Um, I've met a couple people who um, are, are very advanced meditation practitioners, and there is something different about being loosely speaking in their field. Um, so whatever happened that day, you could feel it with the Dalai Lama. I mean, there's all this excitement. There's a lot of priming around that, of course. And then you go sit in this hall with 8,000 people who are on a neurotic scale. <laughs> Neuroscientists have a bit of neuroticism as a whole, if I can generalize, um, you know, sort of uptight people who are very sort of intellectually based, rationalist, reductionist type people. And the Society for Neuroscience is actually known for that kind of manic energy. You go there and it kind of is this weird churn when you leave. A lot of people, especially younger scientists, leave that place thinking, I'm never going to be a scientist. It really has this kind of weird effect on you. And so that's the energy of this conference. You go in this hall and there's just this calm presence. I don't know how else to describe it, um, which I had never felt amongst a big group of people before, especially a bunch of heady neuroscientists. And, you know, then the Dalai Lama tunes in and you could, you could, you could just see it. He was doing something in his body that I hadn't seen a lot of people do before. And then he just spoke from a place that was not prefrontal. That's all I can say about it. You know, he was speaking with his experience and his being in a way that I think the only other people I can relate to as a sort of scientifically minded person is like a jazz musician, you know, someone who's done all this work with their body and their brain. And then somehow they figure out how to get themselves out of the way and just let all of that practice vibrate out into the world and affect other people. And I felt that very clearly in that day. And I don't, I don't think it's magical or anything. I just think it's bodies resonating in a certain way or brains or minds resonating. And, um, you know, it was palatable, palatable in me. My, my advisor, Dr. Keith, kept saying on the ride home, like, Jay, you're glowing. Like, what's going on with you? And it was actually kind of a running joke because every time we stopped for lunch or, or gas, I would tell the the person, like the attendant, I'd be like, have you heard about the Dalai Lama? <laughs> I became like sort of an instant, you know, sort of evangelist of this. Uh, and they were making fun of me because again, it's a bunch of scientists in a big bus. We were in a, we're actually in a church bus, which is kind of funny. Um, but, you know, we're driving home and they're like, Some, something happened to Jay. Like he, he got really turned on by the Dalai Lama. And uh, if you listen to Dr. Keith tell the story, I mean, that hint for him was like, you could just tell something had snapped, you know, or switched in my head. Um, so, you know, there was something around that. And what's interesting about the transmission, if you want to call it that, was that it opened a little space for me in all that angst and anxiety that I was feeling about science. Because really, at the end of the day, I was having all of this 
tension about, am I a scientist? Can I be a scientist? And now looking back after having done practice for 15 years, I know that a, a deeper part of that was that I was not confident as a scientist. So there was a deeper narrative structure emerging that was interplaying um, with this tension about the ethics. And I didn't know that at the time, but there was a lot of that sort of in my own person playing out. And the Dalai Lama just gave me a little bit of space to look at that problem from a different perspective and think, you know, how can Jay feel good about being a scientist, do something that feels right to him and, and still be a scientist, still do it in that path. And I think it was the sort of actually the overlay of ethics and science. Like that's really what he was saying in that talk that, you know, you folks think you're not ethicists. That's what he was saying. And he said that very directly and not you could hear it in his voice. You know, he wasn't, he was saying it with compassion, but with a, a an, an edge to it. <laughs> but he was like, you think you're not ethicist, but you are not only do you have to be ethicist, you're going to have so much power when you understand how the mind works. Think about that, you know, just think about it for a minute. Um, and so it just overlined, overlaid for me, like science and ethics are, you know, kind of they're intertwined. They're not two sides, two sides of the same coin, but they're intertwining in a way where you can't really pull them apart. Um, and then of course, now, you know, I get to work with Shenzhen Young every day and he's written a book called The Science of Enlightenment, which really calls for the, um, for the combination of science and ethics in a sense. So um, I think it really, you know, laid the path for me that that made it possible to pivot to working with Shenzhen, which I have done in the last uh, three to four years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, incredible. Could you take us a little bit through your journey as a meditation practitioner, and then we can rejoin the trajectory of your science work a little bit later. Um, sure. You know, you met the Dalai Lama, you had that tremendously powerful encounter and became curious then about meditation. What did you begin to investigate? What did you begin to practice? I understand that you embarked quite quickly upon a very intense regime of practice, which took you into some very interesting territory. Could you talk us a little bit through that, that process uh, and your general arc as a practitioner? Sure, uh, happy to. So, you know, I think one thing that woke me up a bit about mindfulness and meditation was that I had been focused so hard on the reductionist models of consciousness. I wanted to know what consciousness is and how it emerges from the brain. And I didn't understand or realize that there's this whole inner practice, uh, both from Buddhism, uh, also other religions, but even in science, there's Gestalt psychology, which developed these tools that allow you to um, investigate, like a scientist, the inner workings of the mind. Uh, or at least another way to say it would be to, to, to parse out experience and perception in ways where you can analyze it uh, and not as this sort of unified percept, but you can sort of take it apart. I didn't understand that. And um, once I heard the Dalai Lama speak, I started reading about meditation and Buddhism and things like that and realizing that this is just an inner practice of exploration of that, that space. And that totally turned me on. You know, that was my entry point. As a person who's a hard reductionist neuroscientist, you know, scientist, uh, that was my way to say, okay, I'm not getting into the religion because I have an aversion to that. This is just a way for me to become more of a scientist. You know, it's always that Trojan horse, I think. And uh, I, like everything I do in my life, I 
just immersed myself in it. I was living at the beach in North Carolina um, in the Outer Banks, uh, which is, you know, the set of islands that go up the beach, uh, up the coastline in North Carolina. It's just gorgeous place to live. And meditation, surfing, you know, that's all part of the culture at the beach. So it's kind of easy to find resources and people. And I decided to start practicing for an hour every morning, starting in the summertime. I never took summer classes because I lived at the beach. Um, so. I just dove in. I, I got some practices from the internet, um, got some practices from a website called Wild Mind, uh, which you might know, and just a great resource. I kind of use that as a springing board. And I really did a mixture of loving kindness, um, Goenka, body scans or body practice, and a lot of breath work, focusing on the breath, uh, deep breathing. And then a bit of the body slicing from Goenka, where you just move your attention, you know, through the slices of the body. And I'd always finish with a sun meditation. So I'd make the sun, the, I was doing this early in the morning. So I'd make the sun my object of attention and I would meditate on it as it was rising. And uh, this was about an hour to two hours every morning. It was a pretty intense practice. And I was always mixing different things in, you know, as a scientist would do, I was always exploring and putting things in and out. And about uh, six months into this practice, um, I experienced something with the sun, actually, <laughs> where I had this sort of expansion and contraction experience, where uh, the boundaries of my body dissolved in a way that I had never experienced before. I couldn't really detect where Jay ended and the sun began, I think is the way to say it. And there was just this vast space of nothing. It's just this void. And um, the easiest way to say it, especially for people who've never experienced this, is I sort of fell into the void. <laughs> I just, there was this space and I just, I was in that void. There was no separation between me and that void. And uh, that lasted for, you know, a couple seconds, I'm sure. It felt like forever. <laughs> Felt like I was never going to get out of that void. Um, <clears throat> but I came back out and as I opened my eyes, the whole world was thin. Uh, Shenzhen's phrase is paper thin feather light. Um, everything just, I almost had this holographic sort of nature to it. And in a weird way, I think, I, I think what I know now, which I didn't know then was that the void was kind of behind the perception. Um, and from a psychological point of view, that was very scary to know that maybe behind all of this is something else and maybe that something else is nothing. <laughs> As a philosopher, I knew that, you know, I've been talking, I've been reading Hegel and Wittgenstein and I've been reading a lot of philosophy that was sort of saying, you know, playing with these concepts, but um, I'd never sort of directly perceived it and felt it in my body. And I think it was like kind of coming up against the edge of that perceptual experience and then not really knowing how to interpret it. So, you know, obviously Jay is still there in full conditioning. And when Jay came back online, Jay was not wanting to know about this. <laughs> um, and it just created this psychological tension uh, again. And um, I, you know, there it kind of opened up um, I think a bit of something like a depression, but not, you know, I, I still was motivated. So I don't, I don't really think it was depression, but it was this real sort of malaise of like, 
well, if everything is this void, then what's the point? <laughs> and that was sort of what came up for me as a 20, 21 year old at the time. And uh, there was a bit of a, I think a, what, what I needed was an integration of that information back into the body, but I didn't have anybody to talk to about that. And I didn't know that that was what was needed. And so what I decided to do was to keep meditating with the same practices, <laughs> which then just kept opening this rip in space-time for me. Uh, and you know, there was a bit of me that was curious about it, but there was a bit of me that was totally terrified. And it was just this weird sort of expansion contraction between these states, um, you know, that, that kind of played out over a couple month period. Oh, and then what happened? Um, then I started experimenting with um, mind expanding substances um, that in a weird way helped me do the integration. And I think it was just a matter of luck uh, that I, I fell into these substances. Um, so these are, um, these are basically magic mushroom psilocybin. Um, and I just took enough of a dose where it wasn't like a total ego death, which can have lots of therapeutic benefits as we're, we're finding out from science. It was just enough to put my consciousness back in my body. And I think that's really what needed to happen is I needed to just be embodied and sit in the practice, which is what I did. I did a, a little bit of a retreat uh, with psilocybin. And um, it was the combination of connecting the practice back to the body uh, that really helped me feel into what I was sort of in my head about. And if that makes sense, I was sort of, I'd read a lot about the void at this point. I'd read a lot about from, from the Western and the Eastern points of view from both philosophy and I'd, I'd read the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads and was reading lots of um, very advanced meditation practitioners that I didn't quite understand what they were saying. So there's a lot of kind of conscious mapping and priming that was going into my experience. And I didn't realize that I needed to sort of let that go for a bit and then bring my awareness back in here and, and perceive that emptiness on the inside. And um, I was just out in nature in the Appalachia forest where I lived at the time. And uh, yeah, I had that experience um, on the mushrooms. And then, you know, I understood <laughs> there's more to the practice. There's this sort of embodiment piece to the practice that's really important. And um, at the time I had sort of joined a, a, a group of meditation practitioners that were sort of like me, they were kind of reductionist scientist people who were looking for inner practice without the religion. And uh, it was the first time that I'd spoken about all of this. And some of them were sort of steeped in the traditions of Buddhism. And they had terms and phrases, you know, they, oh yeah, this is, you know, jhana, this is third jhana. And oh yeah, this is a Sanskrit word that I can't remember at this point. But, you know, they had a sort of language for what was happening to me. And I think it was the combination of the embodied practice plus having a group of people to talk to that really helped me um, reformulate kind of who I was becoming. You know, it went from this kind of weird vibrational space that I didn't quite understand. Jay is disintegrating and coming back and disintegrating and coming back to, you know, this is a person who can talk among other people who are also exploring the space. And, you know, this is a new path that you can walk on with these people. And I really think that was the final piece for me was having a community uh, to talk to.
Um, because it really, I think what that did is it helped. I, I think what I was doing was I was reforming, you know, I was at a formative point in my life as a 21 year old. I was sort of reforming my identity and I, I didn't quite understand at the time that that was what was happening. And when it was, when I could externalize out with other people and have them reflect back to me, you know, that this was okay, that it's going to be okay. Other people have had this happen. Some people call it a dark night of the soul, which I don't, I don't think I quite experienced that, but you know, this is a thing, it happens. Actually, some of the Buddhist maps say it has to happen. <laughs> you know, I didn't know that at the time, but um, you know, now that I have people to talk about, it just made me be in the world in a way that felt safe. Um, and, and that was really, I think at the end of the day, what it was really all about. And I'm curious what, uh, I suppose perhaps hard to say at that age, but what changes or modifications to your experience survived the reintegration process? Mm -hmm. And also, if you had subsequent watershed moments in your practice, this must have been almost 15 years ago that we're mm -hmm. talking about. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, so you're asking what has lasted from that? Well, yes, you had this experience that there was a profound shift in your experience with this expansion contraction uh, moment with the sun, uh, this void, this <laughs> rip in time space, as you described it. And then you were able to reintegrate that with psilocybin. And so what was left after the reintegration uh, as, an, as a consequence of that mm -hmm. experience with the sun and also what further, have there been further watershed or moments or uh, significant evolutions in your trajectory as a practitioner since then? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think back then when I was in my early 20s, one of the experiences <clears throat> that at the end of this whole reintegration process was that consciousness felt to permeate everything. And now we're going to move into philosophy instead of science, but there's a whole view in philosophy called panpsychism that claims that everything is imbued with this consciousness stuff, that perhaps matter is actually an emergent property of consciousness. You know, we think of consciousness emerging from the brain, the brain is matter, matter is, you know, physics, reduce it down. There's an inversion of that model, also possible. It's a scientifically plausible point of view. Um, I don't know which one of those is true and we're not going to know for a long time as a, as a species, but I, I think that I felt that, that, that Jay, you know, feels like he's a solid entity that's separate from the world. Objects are separate from Jay. I, you know, there was another way to experience the world where everything was sort of fluid consciousness and my consciousness was pouring out of my head and it was pouring in my head from the world and it was this sort of fluid patterning patterns among patterns of that stuff that we're calling consciousness. And um, that make, that's what I mean by feeling safe. You know, when I could tap into that or, or feel into that, uh, I felt like number one, there's nothing to do in, in the sense that it's, it's everything that I need is here, it's present. If I just bring my awareness into the present moment, I can tap that consciousness and everything is okay. Um, and not only that, but the anxiety, the tension, the fear, the stuff about the void, that's also all patterns emerging in the system that I can pay attention to. But in a, in a weird way, they're existing within that consciousness stuff. 
um, the consciousness stuff is 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 that, but it's also not. It's something you know, sort of beyond it. And so I think I think that is what has lasted. You, you might call that equanimity. You're tapping into equanimity, where um, the system is open and fluid and, and transient, and it's not sticking to any one of these experiences. Um, that you know was laid down in those early days, where that's a part of me, a part of my experience that I can tap into. And not only that, but from that. Um, the body sort of knows what to do in, in a weird way that I, I don't quite understand how to, to describe. But, you know, if I, if I have someone, a friend of mine who's coming to me with a problem, uh, typically what I want to do is calculate and compute the answer. You think about it. And, but, you know, often my insight comes from thinking very quickly about it and then letting go of that process and just telling them what emerges from the system. Uh, tapping into that space, that consciousness space that we're talking about, and just letting the answer emerge from there, because the body kind of knows the answer or it doesn't. There's nothing, you know, there's very little computation I can do at that point. So, you know, I think that that's lasted for me. It's been a theme that I've come back to. I've lost it for many years in my life, uh, where I forget that that is there, <laughs> whatever that is. And then I go on retreats or, you know, I, I do the, the ultrasound plus meditation, which we can talk about. And um, I'm sort of reminded that all of that is available right here in front of my face. I don't have to go anywhere. I don't have to get awards. I don't have to get another PhD. You know, it's, it's just present uh, for me. And once I tap into that, all the other work that I'm doing seems to become much easier to do. There's less pushback and resistance from the world. Or if I'm doing something wrong, if I'm making a bad decision, if I'm, if I'm on the wrong path, when I tap into that, it becomes immediately obvious, you know, stop, stop uh, taking the brains out of rats, that's not for you, you know, pivot to what it what is for you. So anyway, I mean, that's been the theme is that that availability of what I'm calling consciousness, um, you, you know, there's probably other better ways to describe that. But that, that permeating consciousness that is <clears throat> that feels more fundamental than the solid J that, that feels like it's the center of the universe. Very intriguing. And what you said there about your insight coming from the body very often, or from at least letting go of thought and just expressing what comes out, that seems really similar to your description of how you perceive the Dalai Lama's speech at that conference. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think I'm at 1% uh, of wherever the Dalai Lama was, or I'm at 0.001%. But, you know, I've, I, at this point, I'm 37. <clears throat> you know, I've done, I've done lots of work. So if you ask me about neuroscience, I, I know what I know. Um, and I know the limits of, of what I know, at least at this point. So, you know, I don't have to have a narrative voice in my head telling me what to say to you right now. I just need to get out of my way and tell you what I know. And I need to be aware enough or, or concentrating enough to realize when I'm BSing you, <laughs> when I'm going beyond the limits of my own knowledge. And I need to be able to redirect and say, you know, actually, I can't answer that question, which is a fine, totally fine answer as well. Mm. Okay, one more question on this theme, and then we'll get back to... Uh, back sure, to happy, to, happy to talk about it. Yeah, it's just so, it's so interesting. If you had to speculate, 
let's say, what did you say, 1% or 0 0.001%, uh, let's just say 1% or lower uh, of the Dalai Lama's uh, potency in that regard. What would you speculate uh, is going to be required for you to uh, catch up with the Dalai Lama? And I, I understand that some people that might be a little bit heretical uh, to say <laughs> such a thing, <laughs> but uh, never mind. Um, what I don't mean necessarily how much meditation would you need to do to get to his level? That's not what I mean exactly. It's more like what is the shortfall in terms of, well, I don't even know actually how to conceive of it. Uh, traits? Uh, is it integration? Is it is there an aspect of skill? Is it raw potency of concentration, sensory clarity and equanimity and so on and so forth? I'm sure you've thought a lot about that. What is mm -hmm. the shortfall, seeing as you've quantified it, admittedly in a poetic way? <laughs> sure. You know, I like uh, Richie Davison's analogy here, where he says, so Richie Davison's one of the, the godfathers of, of the field of contemplative neuroscience. And he says, you know, there's beginner meditators, novices, beginners, then you can move into an intermediate stage, which is after, let's say, uh, two years, five years, 10 years, you know, that's probably where I am, I'm in the intermediate then you get advanced meditators. Uh, these are people who've been meditating for 10,000 hours, 10 to 20 years. Then you get the Olympians. Um, I think Shenzhen Young, my collaborator, we can, we can say is an Olympian. Uh, the Dalai Lama is, you know, gold. <laughs> he's, he's getting the gold there. He's up at the top of the podium if we, if we have to put it in a hierarchy. Um, <clears throat> so not everyone, can become an Olympian, you know, let's be honest. Even if I trained for my entire life, um, this body just doesn't have some of the preconditions for becoming an Olympi Olympian um, shot putter or something like that. But I can train, I can become a very advanced uh, practitioner. And, you know, if I train for 30 years, I will have powers of my mind or skills or abilities of my mind, let's say it that way, that um, I don't have now. That's for sure. And so, you know, the Dalai Lama may just have been lucky in a sense uh, to have been the right person at the right time to start training as a, as a child as he did to be able to be the human being that he is. Um, but it might also be the case that with the right mental training, we can all become Olympians. Um, and I actually think that's an open scientific question. Uh, is there a, a limit to the inner happiness, well-being, and wisdom and insight that a person can gain through inner and outer practice? Um, or is it possible with the right conditions and the right training that any human being can get there? My intuition on this is that any human being can get there, um, and that's why I'm doing the work that I'm doing. Uh, but we might find, and I think the Dalai Lama would be open to this assertion, science might tell us that, well, most people can get to the advanced stage, but uh, it takes a, a special type of person with a special biology or culture or history to get to that Olympic stage. Um, I'm also okay with that possibility. Um, but I, I think that the trick here is that when you're talking about an athlete, you're just talking about the body. Um, and you're talking about the way that that person relates to their body and the way that they can train their mind to control their body. I, I think in a similar sense, that's what's happening here, that you do all this inner practice, um, you have certain states, you have these 
peak states that you experience that are quite different. They're altered in a, in a way that is different from your normal mode. But that's not enough. It's not enough to just have freedom from the self, to have a no-self experience, to have ego disillusion, which is the phrase that's used in the psychedelic literature. That's not enough. What you have to do is go from that peak state, bring all that back into the body, and then learn in the Dalai Lama sense, you know, how do you use all that practice to be a human being in the world? And being a human being, is there's a lot that goes into that uh, from a nervous system point of view and from a sort of historical point of view, that who you are as a historical entity. And, um, and so, yeah, that's what I mean. You know, I've, I've, I've been doing lots of practice, but I think to get to that, that advanced trainer level, um, you know, I, I got to be able to go from what I can do now, which is I can sit and practice and have lots of interesting altered states. You know, I'm, I'm not trying to um, boast or anything about my practice, but I, I, you know, getting that into being the type of person who can transmit something to you in this case, uh, that will give you a little bit of insight from my own practice or, um, motivate you to change your behavior, to become a better human being, a happier human being, um, a less maladjusted human being, for example. Uh, that takes a, I'm not saying that you are maladjusted, but you oh, know, no, my word. I think uh, you, you can quite, you can say that. That's all right. Uh, <laughs> okay. I think that, that is not an open scientific question. That's already, that's already closed. Well, many of us are, you know, and after the pandemic, it's, it's not helped that situation. So you know, I think going from those peak states, putting all that back into the nervous system and embodying that in a way that helps another human being and helps you in your relationship with that human being, um, ultimately to the point where you can be the Dalai Lama and be so spontaneous that you can get on a stage and throw away your speech, <laughs> which for me, it even gives me anxiety to think about doing that at the Society for Neuroscience you know, throw that on the floor and then just dig into yourself or your body and let it, let it talk, you know? I mean, that, that I think is where we're trying to get to, but it's not just let it talk. It's gotta be in a way that's helpful for, for both you and the world. And, and it's a way where you're not just edifying your ego or, you know, trying to put people down to, you know, make yourself feel better or whatever else, whatever traps you can get in with, with your ego. Um, and that's why, you know, I think a lot of this practice, it's just going to take time, even if we can accelerate it, and we'll probably get into that. But the fact that we have cases like the Dalai Lama, like Shenzhen, like other advanced practitioners who are able to do this are essentially um, case studies and the potential of the nervous system to be this type of human being. Um, and that to me as a scientist is the intriguing part is you know what how does that look on a distribution if you do a bell curve of humans and you can accelerate their practice or you can get them all practicing for 30 years what's the normal distribution look like um, and what does humanity look like when you have that many people doing this type of practice yeah very very intriguing all the things you're saying as you uh, talk there we start to naturally i think or inevitably perhaps move from raw meditational attainment or raw meditational traits or capacities into uh, you, you mentioned things like one's impact in the world and so on that becomes 
as you're well aware, very intriguing and difficult to quantify. Uh, that's another matter entirely, how to measure you know, how good the things you do are, <laughs> or indeed. How to... And you mentioned that the, the scientists at that conference, as an example, some of them had quite an aversion, and you yourself also had, had perhaps still have quite an aversion to organized religion or religion in general, for I think very understandable reasons. Of course, it could be argued that an aversion to religion is as irrational as a devotion to religion. Uh, mm -hmm. I wouldn't argue that, not in your presence anyway, but nonetheless, you also mentioned, now I'm putting a lot of ingredients together here, you also mentioned the Trojan horse. Gee, this meditation stuff might make me a better scientist. And hinting perhaps at what can happen very often is that people can become seduced into a religious mindset or into religious beliefs uh, through the practice of meditation, because naturally you start to have these experiences. How do you explain them? How do you frame them? What's the ethical framework? And in, in simply taking on the practices with the language associated with them, one takes with them the malware, if you want, <laughs> of the religious views, which are taken in a certain sense along with the with the medicine of the, of the practice. So I'm curious how you have navigated that, how you've navigated in a certain sense being open to trying these uh, practices and presumably also uh, considering their ethical implications or their ethical contexts and their worldviews without losing touch or losing your grounding in science, rational thinking, and so on and so forth. Do you partition those as so many religious scientists do, or do you uh, have some way of, of, of marrying them in the middle, some sort of uh, Frankenstein of, you know, something like this? How, how do you navigate that problem, which I'm sure you understand f far better than I do? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And, you know, I would say in my life in general, I've, um, I've been partitioning less and less. And I think that's partly due to the practice. Um, the, the boundaries that I thought were there are imposed um, by my own mind. And I think they're useful. Science is a, an extremely useful method of thinking, extracting information about the world, and then trying to figure out what's there. Um, I think some of the religious practices have come up with good systems of understanding the inner world and trying to understand what's there. But as you said, there's malware. There's malware in science. There's malware in philosophy. There's malware in religion. It's in, it's in our culture. You know, we're having a lot of discussion right now in our culture about things that we should have taken care of a long time ago uh, in terms of the malware of the the structure of our laws and things like that. So you know, what I'm what I'm I think growing up to is the idea that it's it's there in all of these systems of thinking. Um, and all of these rational methods um, that we use to understand the world. And I need, you, you know, part of my personal practice has been using that inner guidepost to make sure that I'm not getting too deeply sucked into any one method uh, of trying to understand the world. And I think I've had that all along. I think that's been a really useful um, method for me to, to make sure that I don't get too stuck. I have the kind of mind where I immerse myself and I get really into something. And then I, I get to the point where I see all the flaws <laughs> and I think I'm lucky to be able to do that. So I, I can sort of understand what's, what's really here and what's not. Um, and for that, I think it's really important to have those separations. Um, 
in the way that the Greek philosophers like Aristotle would talk about it is you're slicing nature, you're carving nature at its joints. You're trying to figure out the natural places to slice it up with an understanding that it might just be one big thing. You know, it might just be consciousness. Um, it might be as David Bohm talked about it, some essential stuffness that everything is dividing into and becoming and unbecoming and becoming. Um, and so I think having those models in the back of my head and saying, look, you think this is all matter and energy, totally possible and probably true, but it also could be what David Bohm is saying, right? The, the, the physicist, it might be something totally more fundamental. Um, might be what they were talking about in the Upanishads. It might be this one thing that, that they're calling, um, you know, the essential nature of reality. So, you know, having, being able to take all these different viewpoints and then using rational methods, um, using science and logic to then try to, to analyze the material or analyze the phenomena um, and then updating my beliefs, I think is the other piece of this that, uh, you know, you have to be able to unstick from what feels fundamentally right to you and what you are attached to, what your self system is saying is true. And I tell you, I'm a scientist. I'm very attached to that. Um, but it's possible that science becomes something else in the future. And, and I'm not that. I'm whatever that becomes. And you have to be ready to allow the data in the world to update your beliefs so that you can be part of that you know, new movement. Um, and so in that sense, I see my practice as really intertwining with my scientific work and that um, the inner and the outer are playing into each other. You know, They are feeding off of each other. And I have to be uh, aware enough to realize when I'm getting stuck in a way that's not serving the purpose of the system, which is in science, it's to find out what, what's out there. As a practitioner, it's to be, you know, to, to find true deep happiness and to find out who I am, what, what am I, you know, deeply. Um, and also just to have fun exploring, you know, the inner space, uh, which, is, which is also a potential. Um, and then being able to use that again, back to update my scientific beliefs and in using that sense of awareness, um, that concentration, that clarity that you talked about, bringing that back into the world and realizing, oh my gosh, I've spent the last 10 years of my life stuck on a theory that I've developed and I'm doing that and I'm being a, an asshole to all my colleagues for ego reasons, not because this theory is actually true. And if I just open my eyes a little bit, I'll realize that they're trying to tell me something about the data that updates my beliefs that will actually make the theory better. <laughs> you know, like, you know, if you just kind of step out of the way a little bit, you can do that. But I think that there's a flip side to that as well, which is the, the human system. And I think um, this is a product of our evolution is it has a lot of blind spots. It has a lot of built-in biases that predate even your nervous system. And it has a lot of reasons to hide the truth from you. Because as I saw as a 21-year-old, as a 20-year-old, the truth sometimes, uh, or what seems to be the truth, can be very scary. And it can be so scary that it makes you not want to get out of bed and go out in the world and, and do things. And so the whole system is this sort of biasing, lensing mechanism to sort of hide some of that stuff from you. And I think in practice, uh, in religious practice specifically, we can 
take refuge in some of those bypasses in a way that feels true and real, but actually is a bypass that's not serving you and it's not serving the world. Um, there's a term for this now called spiritual bypass, which basically means that you feel on the inside like I'm enlightened, I'm done, I'm awake, I know the truth, I'm speaking with wisdom, um, but there's a lot of little patterning in your nervous system that's due to trauma or whatever it's due to that is causing a lot of trouble in the world. <laughs> and because your mind is sort of detached from the body and you feel like all the work has been done, you're not even aware, you're not even capable of bringing the information into your consciousness that would show you what you're actually doing in the world. Um, and we see this with a lot of a lot of Buddhist practitioners and even in, in uh, you know, Catholicism, we've seen a lot of trouble that the priests have caused. And uh, maybe sometimes they know what they're doing, maybe sometimes they don't. But what we can say is that this nervous system has built in a way to create human beings who are on these spiritual paths, but who, for whatever reason, are not even capable of admitting, at least, you know, what they're doing to the world or what they're doing to people. And so, you know, I feel very lucky as a scientist, especially as being in psychology, to be aware of all these biases, because I think what we need to do is bring that information that we're learning about the brain and the body into the practices and update the practices so that we can help people know, oh, you are getting lost in a confirmation bias. I can tell you all about the confirmation bias. It looks like you think you're awakening and becoming enlightened, but actually you're just falling into a confirmation bias. Uh, and here's a method to help you get out of that. So you can get back on the path of loving your family, loving yourself and being in the world in the way that is truly the way that you want to be. You're talking there about the importance of feedback from one's environment and from your you know, colleagues and so on in uh, updating the beliefs and preventing one from falling into these um, confirmation biases and, uh, and other uh, bypasses, as you describe them. And one of the things that I think that can happen to a person as they become more interested in, uh, say, meditation or things of that nature, uh, or indeed any, any uh, similar sort of endeavor, there could be a certain sort of gradual immersion in the uh, environment of that activity. So one begins to identify as a meditator and read books about meditation and perhaps uh, have some art in, in one's home to do with that. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. maybe listening to podcasts about, about meditation and of course doing meditation, uh, that right. performative act to, uh, showing oneself who one is. That process of, ident of, of identity um, enactment that you're hinting at there. So that more and more, the feedback one gets from the world is uh, siloed in a certain sense. Um, and coming more and more from meditation sources. I think this is a contributor to the stealth, the stealth conversion or the gradual mm -hmm. conversion, the conversion by degree, religious conversion that can happen. And that happens to people when they uh, join any, any sort of religious group, inc including, mm -hmm. uh, if you want to say Buddhism or general new age, mindfulness, spirituality, however how you want to put it. Mm -hmm. You also mentioned that, uh, you have some methods to, uh, get people out of confirmation biases or some, some suggestions there. How have you gone about, perhaps with examples or, or just in principle, how have you gone about protecting yourself from that sort of a situation? This is something, of course, as a scientist, 
it's this sort of lesson one, day one of science at school, this stuff. But I think for, for meditators, uh, it's it's not examined as clearly that, you know, at all. So what are the sorts of methods that you've had to employ or that you'd recommend so that people can defend a little bit against the cognitive slide or the, the, the slide into bias, the, the, the gradual conversion, religious conversion that can occur from just being around it so much? Sure. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, your first question about identity, one of my favorite topics to discuss, so we can dig into that. But I think, obviously, as you asked, it it relates deeply to the second question, which is um, when you are starting to identify as the type of person who, then you start what the whole brain nervous system is designed to do is to make predictions. It's It's designed to learn from the world from the patterns or what we say, the way we say it in the visual neurosciences is learning from the statistical regularities of the world. There's a regularity that's coming in, your brain's learning from that. It's then making predictions about what it's going to see next. And then the whole thing is trying to help you act. It's all about action from a neuroscience point of view. Uh, what do I do? What do I say? Did I make a mistake? What do I do next? How do I, you know, so the whole system just constantly doing that. Then you overlay a set of goals on top of that. And those goals are hierarchical and tiered and they're weighted. So if I'm really hungry, the, the hunger goal becomes higher weighted than the I need to become a Nobel Prize winning scientist goal. Um, so all of these things are interacting and they're trying to help you figure out what to do. Now, somehow uh, identity of the human is at the center of all of this. And it's in, in our point of view, we feel like the conductor of that. That's probably not actually the case, but you know, let's just assume that we are controlling in some sense. And so the whole thing is a biasing mechanism to help the whatever you're identifying with, whoever you are narrating as your being, um, the whole thing is a biasing mechanism to help you reach your goals to figure out what to do in the world. And so if I'm the kind of person who's becoming a meditation practitioner, and I'm doing that because I have some deep trauma that I'm healing, and I've healed that trauma, and I can talk about that trauma to other people, you know, the whole system starts biasing towards finding information to help maintain that narrative, um, to help you figure out what to do next. I've reached the first stage of jhana. What do I do next? I go to the second stage of jhana, you know, like, so I got to go read about the second stage of jhana. Um, I can get to the third one, by the way, if, you, if we're, if we're uh, putting our, our uh, gold medals out there. Um, but I can't get past the third stage of jhana. So I'm the type of person who, for whatever reason, can't get past the third stage. So what do I do now? So now I got to go read some more books. And so, you know, the whole thing is just taking in patterns, figuring out what to do, predicting, finding more pattern, you know, and it's just this whole system. Um, that system, as we said, is dealing with a lot of problems. So like the fact that I'm going to die at some point in my life is a certainty. Uh, but even thinking about it brings up a little bit of, oh, shit, you know, okay, now that I, I, I said that, I mean, uh, even today, I think, well, what can I do today to, you know, give my life a little more fulfillment, right? But there's this death problem that we're all dealing with, um, <clears throat> which has been very apparent over the past 18 months. Uh, there's also the problem of, you know, I got to feed myself, I've got to do all these other things that are kind of scary, you know, I got to get food and money and uh, find a mate and um, there's all these problems that the system is also trying to solve. And 
it's too many problems for any one human being to solve at any given moment. If, if I tell you about your death and I tell you about the fact that everyone around you is going to die and, and it could be a horrible death of COVID, you know, it just brings up all this like anxiety and tension. It's much easier to push all that down and um, sort of identify with things that are manageable for the system. And they need to be quite simple because the brain is a quite energy intensive system already. And if I'm sitting there thinking about the problem of my death and how I'm going to solve it, and I need to go like figure out about longevity science and I got to learn, you know, you can sort of spend all your energy trying to solve these problems. A much easier way to solve the psychological problem is uh, do things that feel like you've solved them. <laughs> so, you know, become an enlightened Buddhist person, uh, you know, who can talk about that and go out with other people and and tell them that you've solved all the problems of, of the psychological system. And they will agree. That's an important aspect too. They agree. Everyone agrees. Now you're a guru. You're so, you know, so you kind of can get locked into these sort of habitual patterns of delusion in a sense. I'm not calling Buddhist gurus delusional, but, you know, we can get kind of locked into these models that are the purpose of those models is to help us survive in the world, solve all the psychological anxiety that the, the philosophers have told us about and help us figure out what to do. You know, these are, it's complicated what these models that we live in are doing and they have to reinforce themselves. They have to be, um, they have to maintain themselves, right? Because if they fall apart, you get schizophrenia or you get weird stuff can happen really quickly in these systems. I worked with schizophrenics for 10 years. So, you know, these models need to cohere, they need to be able to take in new information and update, which is probably what sleep is doing for you. And then if you do something like take a psychedelic, they have to be able to get freedom for a minute, and then they got to come back online and they got to re-cohere. Um, so, you know, I think that that whole thing is the identity process. And I think that one thing that the Buddha, uh, assuming that was a real person, figured out is that there's some very fundamental relationship between that set of processes. The identity is not one thing. It's just a bunch of sets of, of processes that are coming together that feel like a unified experience. But that set of processes somehow is creating some trouble for us. <laughs> because even though it's solving all of these problems, it then creates a whole other set of problems that lead to what he called suffering, um, what we can call stress and suffering. There's some tension in the system and there is a fundamental way to loosen that process. Now, I don't ever argue that you should completely get rid of your sense of self. Um, unless you can go live in a cave, be great. I would like to try that myself someday, but you know, if you're going to live in the world, you need a self system, but there's a way to loosen it such that it's not causing so much graspiness or so much aversion in the Buddhist context that is leading to this suffering stuff that we're all so deeply enmeshed in. Um, and that's why I'm so fascinated by this sense of self, this ego identity process, because you know, I think that the fundamental logic of what the Buddha discovered is actually testable by science. And I think my intuition at least is that he was onto something, that this process that's helping us survive, that's a very good process, uh, runs amok. And there's some fundamental logic about grabbing on to certain stimuli and fears and thoughts in the system or pushing them away, like pain, like chronic pain, 
that then creates the space within the system of all this extra suffering that we just don't have to go through to survive and act in the world. Um, but because that system is so good at maintaining itself, you can even start undoing and unraveling the self. And the nature of the system is then to give up a piece of itself, maybe a little bit of trauma that was helping you survive, give that piece up. And now you just become attached as this you know, spiritually enlightened person. <laughs> and it's still not solving the fundamental problem that's being created, you know, deeply in the first place. Um, so that to me is what's so fascinating here is we are becoming, we are beginning with the very, very early stages of understanding how self and ego and identity works and the brain and the body. Um, and I think that we will be able to generate models and science that we can overlay into even Buddhism, or at least into mindfulness, um, secular practices to help people understand, okay, this is how we think, this is our model of the self. And we're monitoring you taking this meditation practice and you've taken the psychedelic and you've had an ego death, but now we're, we're sort of uh, measuring that you've really done a good job of giving up your implicit bias uh, around certain issues, but there's a more fundamental um, attachment in the system to self-coherence. And the model is suggesting that uh, you might not even have conscious access to that. So, you know, instead of continuing your concentration practice, which is just gonna make you better at bypassing what's actually happening in your, sen in your sense of self, we're going to suggest let's do some compassion practice <laughs> and specifically probably compassion to yourself because our model is suggesting that the reason that this is happening is because you have childhood trauma that, that, that obviously you don't want to deal with right now, which is understandable, but that childhood trauma is bubbling up into behavior. That behavior is going out in the world and it's hurting people. Um, and that's, you know, the bypass that your system is engaged in. So, you know, I can imagine that we, we sort of come up with these scientific models of self and, and psychology that then become integrated with even Buddhist psychology, which is quite well developed, actually. Uh, but Buddhist psychology is missing a lot of the pieces that modern psychology is now finding. And I think if we can smash them together and make something that's um, scientifically tractable, then we can actually, we would actually have like, you know, my vision is actually having some type of brain imaging system on retreat that is measuring your brain and your nervous system. It's measuring um, some behavior of the system and it's probably asking you questions and all that information is going into an, an artificial intelligence, which probably sounds scary to some people. That AI is just based on, you know, models, modern models of psychology. And it's trying to help you get a fingerprint of your inner working. And hopefully that would match your subjective experiences that are also happening um, in a way that it can help guide you through the practice, you know, and, and you'd have a teacher, you'd always have a teacher there, a set of teachers that are also guiding you. But this is like another bit of information that is like coming into your system to give you feedback to help you, you know, kind of get a little extra information about what, what do I need to do next that actually gives me a little freedom from that craving and aversion problem, the fundamental thing that I think we can actually get people to. 
Wow, uh, that is quite a vision. Imagining following you on that, imagine this, imagine that. Uh, mm -hmm. If we could model all those things to such a degree, understand them to such a degree that such a thing was was possible, uh, it boggles the imagination. Of course, then we'd be faced even more <laughs> pressingly with the question of why, what to do with it all. Uh, in other words, uh, at that point, with that level of uh, understanding and technology and modeling and so on, I mean, I think ju just the, even imagining that is enough to precipitate a no self crisis. Uh, <laughs> uh, really, because if, if it's all understandable right. to that degree, what is the point of it? And, and now we're back to religion again, I suppose. You know, yep, um, yep. What, the addiction is, of course, a famously difficult problem uh, to deal with. And one of the statistically uh, significant uh, interventions for addiction is religious conversion. And I think that's something that's recognized in, for instance, um, the Alcoholics Anonymous model, one of the steps involves that. And mm -hmm. certainly it seems in the contemporary mindfulness movement, there is a strong cohort of uh, recovery, as it is in, in most religious systems, that there is a strong mm -hmm. presence of that group of people. That leads me to wonder occasionally, things like that, and, and what we were discussing about identity and the effect of identity, at reducing the cognitive load. What load? The load that says, uh, what should I be doing? How should I prioritize? And mm -hmm. what's the right thing to do? Uh, mm -hmm. And how, what does this mean, etc.? Th these sorts of um, religious conversion, I think, as you, as you point out, can lighten that cognitive load mm -hmm. uh, with its pros and cons. That's one of its pros. Maybe it's also one of its cons. I sometimes wonder when people ask questions in podcasts, occasionally I'm interviewed or I, I listen, of course, to other interviews. People say, what has the practice done for you? And I always wonder, I always find that an impossible question to answer. How did parse out? And, and this perhaps with your measurables, you know, what you've been measuring and, and hypothesizing about what's going on in the brain with meditation practice. Mm -hmm. um, I always wonder what proportion of the perceived change is related to the, the, the practice, whatever that is, and mm -hmm. how much of it is related to the identity shift that comes from being a person who does that or from mm -hmm. being a person who's acting out some form of control or progress and some sort of agency on, on one's mind and so on with a goal in the future, whether it's reincarnation or enlightenment or reducing craving and aversion or, or all of these other sorts of ideas. So I'm, I'm wondering now if we could perhaps transition a little bit into some of your ideas about what the practice is doing, because now, of course, you're using ultrasound, non-invasive ultrasound neuromodulation uh, to affect the brain and to, well, you'll explain it better than me, of course, um, that might, does that, does that begin to get to the, the, the root of this? Someone's been practicing for 15 years and they feel like so happier and they're more in control and they're, you know, is that really the practice or, or is it the performance of the practice that's consoling them to such a degree mm -hmm. that they, that they, they feel, they feel they've made progress. Yes. Uh, this is a lovely question. I, I like the way that you framed it. Um, and I'm actually having a bit of insight about the way that I think about it myself as you ask it. So as you're talking, you know, I, I was thinking, what's a case where all, all of that uh, existential stuff that we talked about earlier, the, the death and all that, all that that we have to deal with as conscious human beings, what's a practice, what's something that takes care of that without any practice? Uh, well, you could say a cult. Uh, I'm in Arizona. We have lots of cults around Tucson, actually. Um, and, you know, some of them are more harmful to people than others. But if you're interested in, in what's going on there, it seems like part of what they do is they give you a mental model 
that solves a lot of these issues. That's that's sort of a reductionist way, and you know, um, we can be mean to cults. I think we can beat up on them. Um, but what it's doing is it's solving a lot of these issues with this mental model, but there's very little practice of attention or awareness or things like that. You know, of course, some cults do do that, but sometimes you can join a cult and within a week you're, you're in the cult, you know, you have bought into the story. And so in that case, I think that's where your identity shifts. And it's a case that tells us that identity can shift relatively quickly if the model is coherent enough and solves the right psychological problems. Uh, there's other cults in politics that we won't bring up, but they, I think they also are doing something similar uh, on both sides of the aisle. And so that's, that's one case. That's a, that's a possible human experience that, that happens a lot. Uh, in practice, what you're doing is you're training something in the nervous system. And that's in, in a lab, that's really what we're so interested in. But you can't remove the training from the identity because as we talked about, the identity is both top-down and bottom-up. Um, it's, it's everywhere in the brain. It's organizing things in a way about itself. Um, but the difference is you're training something. And you know, in our, in our parlance, we use Shenzhen's model, which is you're training attention and concentration. You're training the ability to track sensory information and you're training equanimity, which you can think about as the openness towards your experience. Um, I like to talk about those as skills like Shenzhen does, but I also think about them as like a mental resource. So we have natural resources like, you know, coal and things like that in the world and the brain, you have mental resources. So if you have stress or trauma, you, the more of these resources you have, the better able you are to deal with those issues. So let's say you live through a pandemic, which is stressful as we've all learned, the more you have the ability to emotionally regulate, regulate your emotions, the better able you're gonna deal with the pandemic. The more that you can disengage your attention from news and re-engage your intention with your attention with your child, the better you're going to feel, I can predict that. Um, the more that you can disengage from thinking, the better you're going to be able to sleep, right? So these are mental resources. And I think that part of what meditation and mindfulness practice are doing is they're helping you to up those resources. Now, what's really interesting from a sort of neurocognitive model of identity and self is that the more you up these resources, like you said, almost like the less the self system has to do uh, it doesn't need to come online in the middle of the night and help you solve the problem of the pandemic. You're not going to solve the pandemic. <laughs> There's nothing you can think in your head that's going to reduce the fact that this is happening to you in the world. Much better for you to turn that ego process off, go to sleep, wake up refreshed so you can deal with the damn pandemic. <laughs> that's what you need to be doing. Um, and so that's, I kind of break it into these two categories. You've got the self, which can radically change with new models. And then you've got all these resources in the brain and the body that can be trained with meditation practice. But something really interesting happens. I think, um, you know, depending on the person and the practice, but somewhere along the way, let's say at year two or year five, um, there's like a threshold effect where you have so much of these resources like concentration and clarity and equanimity that you now have them in the world. 
and you're on a TED stage. You know, I gave a TED talk, TED, TEDx talk. And it was the scariest talk I've ever given in my life. I mean, they just like make you memorize every word and it's like a performance and the, my pitch, my voice is very low, as you can tell, and they want more intonation and, you know, and so, you know, the first two days I was just freaking out and I'm like, oh my God, I'm not the right person. My sense of self was like, no, I'm not the right person to give a TED talk. I should not be on the stage. And then I did some practice and I leaned into my practice and I, I tapped into these resources and I did a Superman pose on stage. You know, I stood up really tall and I was like, all right, I can do this. And again, I got the self out of the way and I just relied on what I have in the system and boom, I gave a talk. And now, you know, 50,000 people have seen it, which is incre incredible to me that that many people would watch me talk about anything. Um, but that again is, that's the relationship here between the sense of self and it, it trying to convince you that it needs to use all of your energy to survive and figure out what to do. And then all of these other processes, which I think are using less energy, but actually can take care of most of the work for you so that you can get on with enjoying your child in front of you or enjoying the food or tapping into the universal consciousness that's all around you, if, if, if that's what you believe. Um, so yeah, I think that that's such an interesting question because these are mutually exclusive as we've carved it up in neuroscience, but they are interacting in a way that you can't separate them from. And one thing that I really love and what I dream to have in the science is eventually we will have a neurocognitive assessment toolbox that, that basically takes your, you know, think about it like a personality fingerprint, but it's more like a neurocognitive personality fingerprint that says, okay, Jay, you've had three significant traumatic life events. And here's your like genetic profile. You know, you can get really sci-fi with this, right? Here's your genetic profile. And, and here's, you know, your baseline levels of whatever's in your blood and your neurocognitive system, you know, and, and here's your interview with Shenzhen Young. Shenzhen likes to do his psycho-spiritual interview, which I think is pretty cool. So given all of this, okay, here's where we think you should start with the practice right? Like you should start with loving kindness with a Goenka body scan. And then you should go run because you're a little overweight <laughs> and running is going to feed back into the whole system and make all this work. You know, so you have this whole framework that is then monitoring you and helping you figure out where these thresholds are so that we can help you get to them and then integrate when they happen. Um, and that for me, going back to my early story, I didn't know that that was happening, that it was a possibility, and I didn't know what to do, you know, but if somebody would have been there, like if I would have known Shenzhen when I was 21, I might be way more advanced in my practice at this point, you know, so it, it doesn't have, it didn't necessarily have to take 15 years for me to get to where I am in my practice right now. It could have been five years um, or something like that. So, right, that's how I see, you know, these things totally overlapping. You can overlay the science on top of it. Um, and really, you know, help people navigate sort of through the traps of the ego. Amazing. And that TED talk, I will link to it. It's a very uh, excellent, uh, short as these things are. Yeah. Oh, you're yeah. welcome. It's great. It's a very excellent and engaging as to, you know, Jay's very engaging uh, in that talk, a short intro into the big ideas of the work you're doing. And for the longer, uh, more in-depth 
summary, I, I suggest people check out the University of uh, Southern California Center for Mindfulness Science. Yep, that's um, run by my friend Ryle Kahn. Yep. Yeah, that pres the pres there's a presentation there, which I I'll link also in the show notes, which will uh, get a bit more precise about the work that Jay's doing. And some of that work, of course, is with Shinzen. Amazing. Uh, one of the things we said, I know we're now coming to the end of our time. Maybe we'll have to do another one of these. Love to. One of oh, good. Okay, great. Well, then that's, that's fantastic. One of the things we said before uh, we, we went on air that we might, we might talk about, and you've just brought him up, is uh, your uh, Shinzen Young, your collaboration with him. And uh, of course, you have a professional collaboration with him, and you also have a personal friendship. And uh, I presume an exchange as meditation practitioners, I assume that's that's a natural part of, of that relationship. And you've also, it seems, mentioned Shinzen Young and the Dalai Lama more or less uh, quite a lot in the same paragraph, at least, if not in the same I, sentence. I noticed I did that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So that's kind of interesting, uh, perhaps due to their impact on you, or I'm not sure what. So could you uh, talk a little bit about how did you meet Shinzen? What has been his effect on you personally? What has been his effect on you as a practitioner and also as a, a collaborator? And why mm -hmm. is it that you keep mentioning Shinzen in the same breath as the Dalai Lama? <laughs> it's a very good question. I, I noticed I was doing that and thought maybe we should put a qualifier there. You know, in, in my head, they're in the same category of deep practitioners um, who are, are scholars of Buddhism and, and Shinzen's case really of religion. He's a, he's a deep scholar of many religions. Obviously, Dalai Lama is a figurehead, a world leader, you know, and 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 I think he's in the Olympic category. I think Shenzhen uh, could be in the Olympic meditation category, but uh, as he says it, he's too lazy to do that. So, <laughs> um, meaning that you know he's got deep practice and experience, but he's he's not meditating for eight hours every day. He's you know engaged with our lab and science and other things. So he's really giving himself. Uh, to the world in that way. Um, so yeah, I, I don't put them exactly in the same category. Obviously, the Dalai Lama is a very, very special uh, religious figurehead. Um, but in terms of the, the deep practice and knowledge, I, I think, you know, they're in that category for me. Um, so yeah, Shenzhen, what, what to say about Shenzhen? He is, he is a beautiful mind. I mean, they, they use that phrase a lot for people, but Shenzhen really does have a special way of um, of combining different, different modes of knowing and thinking about the world into unique methods. And I think really that's what Shenzhen has done is he's, he's taken Eastern wisdom traditions, he's taken science, he's taken logic. He's now getting into neuroscience and, and like very advanced mathematics called category theory. And he's just got this mind to sort of meld it together in a way that's useful. And I think that that's really important for Shenzhen um, is that I know a lot of very smart people at the university who are working on things that are interesting, but low impact on the world. Uh, and Shenzhen has had such an impact on people's lives, um, you know, for the better in terms of happiness and well-being and, and being able to deal with, with what's happening in this world. So um, in that sense, he has a truly beautiful mind and a, and a beautiful way of synthesizing information. And I do, I wake up every morning, I do gratitude practice. Um, and part of that practice is that I get to, Shenzhen calls me, you know, he lives four, four blocks away from me. He calls me on the phone every morning and he says, hey, what are we working on today? You know, and that is truly a dream uh, for me to, to be able to have that in my life. So I, I feel um, especially lucky. Um, 
I, you know, part of why I like working with Shenzhen in the lab is that he's very methodical uh, in a Zen Buddhist traditional way. I mean, it is like detail oriented to a fault sometimes, um, which is very good in the lab. We have to be that way in a lab. We take detailed, you know, notes of everything we're doing. Everything has to be clean. You know, it's, it's a very particular way of running things. And he's done that for the practice. So the way that he teaches meditation, the way that he talks about it, the way that he theorizes about what's happening in meditation. And that makes it very easy to use as a system in the lab, because we have to be able to define every part of what we're doing. And we have to define it in a way that we can measure it. That's called operationalizing uh, in science. And Shenzhen has developed a system specifically for that. Like he, that was his intention actually, which is just beautiful from a scientific point of view. Um, and on top of that, then he's overlaid um, an, an incomplete, so a not, not a perfect model, but a model of human happiness. So to your question of what's the point of all of this, what if I can get this amazing neuro contraption that helps you get the benefits of meditation, you know, like the Dalai Lama said, but in five years or whatever, you know, the point of that is to help that human being live uh, to their fullest happiness potential. Um, but we don't mean happiness as like the state, we mean what the Greeks meant by happiness. You know, we, we mean a deep level of fulfillment uh, to the point where you are living for other people uh, and getting the fulfillment from that. And so Shenzhen, on top of this beautiful model of all the pieces of mindfulness, has then overlaid a, a model of human happiness, which is a real, you know, it's got some juice to it. You know, I can study it in the lab and I can parse it and I can actually update it uh, because, you know, I don't think anything Shenzhen's done is complete. It's actually just a start uh, for where we want to go. But that then helps me to think about the human element of all of this. And as we're talking about how do I make sure that as you're training your concentration or as you're training your equanimity, how do we make sure that you're moving towards the goals that are consistent with how you define happiness for yourself, how your society defines happiness, how your family defines it? How do we make sure that you're moving in a direction that's good for you, that you can define as good, and that we can almost be agnostic to the ethics of that phrase? but making sure that we're not creating enlightened assholes. We're creating uh, happy human beings who are helping the world and helping us you know, solve these immense problems that we're all facing with climate change and ecological collapse. The energy crisis, the human scale population, you know, the pandemics go on and on, right? All these problems are happening and we need a model to help people practice into a way to help, help us all live in the world uh, in a better way. And Shenzhen's done that. He's done, the, done 50 years of work to create a cartoon sketch that begins <laughs> at the path, right? So it's definitely you know, not perfect. But it now gives me and other scientists the tools to start using the empirical scientific method plus our practice you know, to do something with that that I think uh, does actually help humanity as, as little as we can help. You know, it helps move the needle a little bit in the direction of actually helping us solve some of these problems and live in the world in a way that feels okay instead of what's happening right now, which is depression 
many of your listeners probably know, but depression tripled over the pandemic in the United States. Uh, anxiety doubled. Um, suicide, thankfully, didn't go up, but it probably will actually, um, at, you know, because there's going to be a delay of mental health issues. And so, you know, we're we're not only not helping in science, but things are getting worse. And you know, one thing I love about working with Shenzhen is we're trying to create a model based on what he's done that actually is a scientific model to help <laughs> some of these deeply ingrained issues that we're dealing with. Yeah. And on top of that, uh, just getting to hang out with Shenzhen is, uh, it's hard to describe. He's, he is an example in the lab to me and all of my students of what the practice can do. And, you know, he's obviously not a perfect human being. I don't edify Shenzhen at all. He is a human, he's got faults, but even within those faults, you can see the practice just shining through him. And that's the part, that's the deep sort of lesson is it, this is not a cure-all. It doesn't, you know, cure the problems of being a human, but um, it allows you to wake up and grow up in a way that's sustaining. And, and to me, that's hanging out with him so much. Um, and, and, you know, I, I used to edify him. I used to put him on the same level as the Dalai Lama. And I'm sure if I got to hang out with the Dalai Lama, I'd realize he's also just a human being uh, who's just got these extraordinary powers of, of consciousness. Um, but the real lesson in hanging out with Shenzhen is realizing that this practice transforms the inner world, which then becomes sustaining. It becomes renew like a renewable resource. We talked about mental resources. Hanging out with Shenzhen, you like feel renewed. Like you're just... He's got so much energy to be 77 years old. And he's like got more energy than my 18-year-olds who are working in the lab, who are, you know, freshmen in college and they're burnt out already. And then you hang out with this old guy, right? And he's got so much energy, and you're like, what is going on here? And you get the sense, you know, that there's something sustaining inside of him uh, that that was opened by the practice. And so, you know, that that whole multi-level of the scientific model, the rational structure the logic of what he's created the sort of human happiness element on top of that and then having a person who's actually walking the walk you know that can can kind of be a a sort of example you know we don't think of him as like a guide or a teacher in the lab because we want to be careful not to be too biased by shenzhen you know we don't want to just be you know disciples of shenzhen here but he is an example of a human being who can be transformed by the practice Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, this has been a totally incredible conversation. Thank you very much. And I'd love to do another one. And I'm very pleased to see you nodding uh, at the proposition of that. Really amazing. Of course, uh, watch out for the next trialogue, uh, which <laughs> is also due to be recorded in the near future between Dr. Jay Sanguinetti and Chelsea Fasano and Shinzen Young, the mm -hmm. aforementioned. Uh, so thank you so much for being uh, so generous with your time. Dr. Jay Sanguinetti, thank you very much. Yes, thank you. It was a pleasure, and uh, I have lots of lots of ideas that have bubbled up, so I would definitely love to do this again. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.